Thank you very much, Holly. Uh, Holly has done an amazing job with Young Lives, and uh, I would definitely encourage you, if you want to hear more, talk to her afterward. Her passion for this ministry uh, just shines through in every single conversation she has, and so please seek her out and find out more how you can help out with this amazing ministry. Uh, my name is Nathaniel. I'm the missions guy here, and uh, today I'm going to be with you as we continue our study in First Peter. Uh, this has been a pretty awesome study. I'm really glad to be able to be a part of, uh, a part of it today. Uh, it's interesting. We're starting chapter 4 today in First Peter, and chapter 4 is actually kind of looking back all the way to chapter 1. And so if you can remember all the way back to when we first started, uh, chapter 1 especially was really diving into what it means to have an identity as a son and daughter of God. And Peter's just hammering home, you know, having an identity and, and being sure of yourself and your relationship with the Lord. And because of that, you're able to then, you know, get through all the trials and the suffering and the turbulations, all the things that are going to happen in your life. But he says it's because of your identity that you're able to get through these things. And now in chapter 4, we see him kind of coming back to this, but he's starting to hit it in a little bit of a different way. And he's going to talk a little bit about what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God and to know exactly who you are as a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so uh, we're going to dive into what it means to be a part of a kingdom, what a kingdom is and, and what that all entails and what the kingdom of God really is. And for me, the, whole, the first thing I thought of when I, when I started diving into this was a little bit on the nerdy side. So if you don't know me very well, you, you, you might not know that I'm a very big nerd. And I love literature. I love history. I actually have a degree in it. Uh, I love, like, fantasy novels, um, like Lord of the Rings or stuff like that. Like, these things get me excited. And I know you're super shocked because you're like, no, Nathaniel, you're super cool. And... My wife's there. She's like, no, no, don't lie to yourself. <laughs> but I, I really like this stuff, you know. I, I can dive in. Matter of fact, just last week, uh, Nicole, my wife, and I had a vacation, and we had three days off, and we were super excited for it. And so I went to the library, and I got three new books. They're fantasy novels. i never read them before, and I finished two of them in two days. Like, I just dive in, and I love that stuff. And oftentimes in these kind of novels and then even in history, talking about real stuff, uh, you talk about these ancient kingdoms, medieval kingdoms, where the whole concept is that this area, this place is ruled over by a king, by a queen, by royalty, you know, and, and it has this whole structure, this whole political structure. And I think that we oftentimes are drawn to kind of that historical narrative, it's not just me that are, you know, fascinated by this type of stuff. I'm not the only one that enjoys these kind of books and novels as well as studying history. Uh, the fantasy genre is actually the largest genre uh, when it comes to literature uh, in the world. And the reason is that we're drawn to something that, you know, has to do with this whole idea of kingship and the kingdom. And so I was, I was really wrestling with it and wondering, okay, wh what is it that makes us want something like that? What is it that draws us to this? Uh, and, and you can see it even with people who aren't as big nerds as me uh, in culture today. People are still drawn to it. I mean, Game of Thrones is super popular, right? And that's one of the nerdiest shows you can imagine, really. 
but it, it's, it's this whole concept of kingdom and, and, and kingship that we're fascinated with. The thing that fascinates us about it, though, I think is in the simplicity of it. Is that in, in a kingdom, there's the king, and he has complete sovereignty over the entire realm, and everybody in it, and everyone else just has to swear fealty to him, just have to say, I will follow you. And then they don't have to worry about anything. The king is the one that worries about what's going to come next. He's the one that worries about how he's going to provide for his people or defend them. He's the one that worries about all those details. And so the simplicity of that lifestyle, I think, appeals to us, especially as Americans. I mean, we're all about independence, right? We're all about, you know, forging our own way and being able to do things ourselves. Uh, And then there's this whole concept that is just so simple in contrast to be able to look at a king and say, hey, I'm going to devote myself completely to you knowing that you're going to take care of me and I'm going to trust that you're going to do it. And I think that's really what, what draws us to this, to kingdom. And there's something historically that uh, is really interesting. Uh, in historical kingdoms, especially in medieval kingdoms, um, you can look at uh, England as a very good example that we can understand well. There was this idea of becoming a king's man. And when you became a king's man, you would swear an oath to the king. And basically that oath was saying that I'm going to devote my life to you and to your will and no matter what. And when you swear that oath, it, it was a an agreement between you and the king that you were going to be able to, you know, say, I know you're going to take care of me, and so I'm going to give you everything I have. And they did it with this sense of love and devotion and faith, absolute faith in that king. And so when they became a king's man, the king never had to doubt whether or not they were going to, you know, follow his orders or, or do what he needed to do. And they never doubted that the king had the best interest of them in, in his mind, even if it meant sending them to their death, but they knew it was because it was for the best of the kingdom, and that was okay with them. That, that's what it meant to be a king's man. Even uh, in some of our most ideal uh, literature, talking about this type of thing is King Arthur, right? Talking about the most ideal. King Arthur was the perfect king uh, even though he was mythical, he was the perfect king uh, in, in this whole like, kingdom concept. And his knights, the people that you know, were under him, they loved him unconditionally. And they devoted themselves to him and would go and do anything for him. And King Arthur, if you look at the stories, he wasn't perfect. Like He still failed, he made mistakes, and, and yet his, his knights still loved him with everything they had, and they never questioned him, not once. When we talk about the kingdom of God, how much more can we be confident in our king, who is Jesus Christ, who is perfect in every way? Even mankind's most ideal king still made mistakes. And yet you look at the kingdom of God and it's a real kingdom. It's a a live kingdom that is active in the world today and the king is perfect. And yet we find ourselves struggling with the idea of absolutely submitting ourselves before him and being able to become a king's man 
before him and be able to say, I will give everything to you because I trust you completely. Why is that so difficult for us? But we're going to dive into that a little bit today. We're going to be in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. And I'm going to read this passage, and it's a little long, but I'm going to read through it, and then we're going to dive into what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God and to submit ourselves to our king. In 1 Peter 4, 1, it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Lord, thank you so much for today and the opportunity to be able to speak about your word and also to worship with my brothers and sisters here today. To be able to dive into what it means to be committed to you fully and to be able to worship you with everything that we have. And I ask right now that everything that I say comes from you, Holy Spirit, and that you will guide my words and guide my lips so that I can uh, glorify you in this time. I thank you so much for all that you've given us, and thank you so much for this, uh, this place and this time. In your name, amen. All right, so we're going to dive into kingdom, and this is something that uh, I think is important for every single Christian to have a clear understanding of. And it's not just me. I mean, Peter, had, like I said, he started talking about this in the first chapter, and now he's getting back to it toward the end of his letter. And it's because this is something that's super important for us to know. And it's not just the head knowledge, but we need an understanding of it, a clear understanding. And Peter shows very clearly that there are two kingdoms that are existing in the world today. There is one, the kingdom of man, and two, the kingdom of God. See, we were citizens of one kingdom, and then when you become a believer, you become a Christian, someone who devotes his life to Christ, you become a citizen of another. It says in 1 and 2 of, of chapter 4, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way as thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passion, but for the will of God. So the kingdom of man we see is ruled by passions of the flesh. It's ruled by our sin, but kingdom of God is ruled by the will of God. 
And they're very distinct kingdoms, and they're very clear differences between the two. The kingdom of man is a physical kingdom. We, we see it in, in the world. Everything around us, it, it's a very physical place. But when you're talking about the kingdom of God, it's not like we have a, you know, a part of the world that's carved out, and you know, this territory is God's. And this was a hard concept even for people uh, in uh, biblical times to understand, contemporaries of Jesus, because Jesus would talk about the kingdom of God often, and especially to the disciples, and they were confused by it. I mean, you see even all the way up to right as he's ascending into heaven after his resurrection, uh, the, the, the apostles, they asked him, so are you setting up that kingdom you were talking about? And once again, Christ had to say, no, it's not that kind of kingdom. And Luke 17, 20 says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. Jesus answered the Pharisees. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And so the kingdom of God is not a physical place. It's not somewhere that we can say this right here. This is the kingdom of God, and you need a passport for it. You need to go into it, go through customs. It's not like that. It's something that exists in the midst of the kingdom of man. And so all of this is the kingdom of man, but at the same time, there's the kingdom of God existing at the same time within it. And so that begs the question, what is the kingdom of God really made of then? Is it just spiritual? Is that it? Is it just a spiritual kingdom? Well, the kingdom of God is made up of every single believer in Jesus Christ. You are the kingdom of God. You are the physical representation of the kingdom of God, which is spiritual, but is also physical. And we, when we become Christians, we claim citizenship in that kingdom. And it is a citizenship that is not hidden. It is a citizenship that should be exalted and something that should be shown to the rest of the world, to the kingdom of man. There should be a distinction between the two there should be some kind of separation. We should know when somebody is a citizen of the kingdom of God. You see, when we're a citizen, we're claimed by Jesus Christ and we are solidified in our identity as his and as citizens of the kingdom of God living in exile in the physical kingdom of man. And because of that knowledge, because knowing that we are citizens of the kingdom of God, and that it's not just something that we do, but rather it is a full identity and it is a, uh, a thing that is claimed by our king, we are claimed by our king, that we can then live a life that will follow God's will. Because that is what the kingdom of God does. So let's talk a little bit about these two kingdoms in light of what this passage specifically says. And we need to understand both of them because, well, one, we need to know which kingdom are we claimed by. And also we need to know, two, how to fight the war against the other. And make no mistake, it is a war. In 1 Peter 2, 10 and 11, says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Again, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is the will of God, but the kingdom of man is the passions of our flesh. And so we are constantly waging a war from the passions of our flesh to the will of God. So the kingdom of man is ruled by passion. And the question is, how do we then go from the kingdom of man to the kingdom of God? What's the distinction between the two, and how do we know that we're not still within one when we're trying to be in the other? Well, the big thing about it is we need to understand that those in the kingdom of man have a worship disorder. And that's somewhere that we all began. We all began with a worship disorder. And it means that we were created by God for a very specific purpose. From the beginning of time, our purpose was to glorify and worship him. That's all we're supposed to do. That's still our purpose even today is to just glorify God. Isaiah 43.7 says, Everyone who is called by by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. We are created to worship him and to glorify God. But see, we, from the very beginning, from the fall, we have been corrupted by sin. And so when we come into the world, we are corrupted by the sin and we have this innate purpose that we are aware of. We're aware that we're supposed to worship God, and yet we can't formulate necessarily because our minds are clouded by sin. And so we try to fill that void, fill that purpose by worshiping anything and everything. We have a worship disorder. Worship is supposed to be of God, and yet the rest of the world is worshiping something other than God. And we've all been there, so it's not like you can't understand. We've all known what the things are that we worship above God. And it leads to idolatry. Our idols are anything that we worship that's not God. Anything that takes the place of God. And that can take the form of anything. It can take the form of a spouse. It can take the form of your children. And be uh, a sports team. I've seen that one a lot. It could be anything. It could be our hobbies, our passions, our, our, the things that we want in this life. Those can be our idols. But it goes beyond that, too. It could also be our greed. It could be our desire for money. It could be our anger, where we feel such power and control in that moment when we're so angry and we say, this is how I'm going to cope with everything because at least I control that. And we worship it. It can be our lust the things that we desire after. These things all become idols. It doesn't have to be a physical thing. It's it's what we worship. So what are you worshiping? Are you worshiping God or are you worshiping something else? Something to take the place of God? Because that's a hallmark of the kingdom of man is to worship something other than God. And so we need to make sure we're not falling within that it says in, in verse three of chapter four, for the time that is past for, uh, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. 
See, the kingdom of man revels in these things. There, there's nothing wrong with it to them. And it's because they are worshiping it. Only when you become a citizen of the kingdom of God can you recognize that there's something wrong with it. And that's why it exists. That's why there is a disorder, a worship disorder, is because to those who are within it, those who are you know, deep in it, it is something that seems right to them. Because we have that void in us that says we have to worship something. God put that there. The point is that we're supposed to fill it with him, and yet we fill it with everything else. And so when people are in the midst of that, when people do not have a relationship with God, they are worshiping all these things, and it seems right to them. And then we have people come in saying that you have to conform your behavior before you can know God, and it leads to shame and guilt in those who have no relationship with him. I've met so many people, and I've talked to them, and their response immediately when I start talking about about God and a relationship with Jesus is that I just need to get this stuff together in my life. I just need to put to bed this, uh, this sin or, or this thing that I'm struggling with. And then when, I, when I'm done with that, then I can finally devote myself to Jesus. I want to, but I have to deal with this first. And that idea is very natural to a lot of people, but it's also been perpetuated by the church. We expect so many non-Christians to act like Christians. That makes no sense at all. There's no reason that they would act and behave in a way that honors God if they're in the midst of worshiping idols instead of him. And so it's completely unfair for us to expect them to behave as a believer. And in fact, it's pushing people away from God because they're caught so much in this shame and guilt that they don't even understand. See, our citizenship in the kingdom of God comes first. Our identity comes first. And then behavior will follow that. There is no way that you can change your behavior without having a relationship with God because he is the only way that you can change your behavior. Nothing that you do can ever fix that. And so don't impose that idea on non-believers because all you're doing is showing them that the gates to the kingdom of God is closed to them. And that is not what it's about. See, salvation is the turning point from one kingdom to the other, and it is the way that you walk through gates into the kingdom of God, which are open. And salvation is when we recognize our false worship. It's when we recognize that we do have a worship disorder, and then we change our worship from those idols and turn it to God. If you're sitting here and you're a Christian, you're a believer today, you know what I'm talking about. You've experienced that before. When your life used to be ruled by all these other things, all these things that uh, always, you know, caught your attention, there were the things that you went after, you desired, you were pursuing, and then God grabbed your heart and he revealed to you that all this stuff is not going to help you. It's not going to fulfill that innate desire we have to worship something. 
And so then we have a moment, a flip, where we devote ourselves to him. In that moment, we are justified before him and made holy in his sight, and our sins are forgiven. But see, there's a second part to salvation, too, where there is something called sanctification. And sanctification is the ongoing process from that moment where all the things that are left over from when we were worshiping idols— Those things are still wrapped around us tightly. The way I think of it is that uh, it says that sin is slavery, right? We are enslaved to our sin. And so we have chains wrapped up around us, and those chains are our sin. Those chains are the things, the idols that we worshipped before. Whether it was good or bad, we're wrapped up in these chains. And when we become a believer, God takes those chains and he strikes them and they are broken, But oftentimes, we like to keep the burden on our shoulders. We don't shrug off those chains. We let them just sit there. If your idol is sitting on your shoulders, it is way too easy to turn to it and start worshiping it again in those moments where you feel like you're alone, those moments when you feel like, you know, maybe God isn't really enough. And all it takes is just to push them off because God has already freed you from them and yet they are still heavy on you and you find yourself turning to them again and again. So sanctification is the ongoing process of taking those chains and throwing them off, taking them to the ground. We are not enslaved by them anymore and yet we still feel the burden of them, and yet we can in one moment just take them all off. But it's very difficult to do, and it is a process, and it's something that God recognizes as long as we're living as exiles in the kingdom of a man, we have the influence of the kingdom of man constantly berating us and constantly coming at us from all sides. But our identity as a citizen of the kingdom of God says that we can push past that and we can continually search after him and one by one pull those chains off of us. In this passage, he's talking about the kingdom of man and God and be able to go from uh, pursuing your, your passions of the flesh into pursuing the will of God But then he talks a little bit about the reaction that the kingdom of man has to the kingdom of God. Because you have to recognize in this letter, he's writing to Christians. So he's assuming that he's talking to people who know Christ and are living uh, a life in the kingdom of God. And so he says that there's going to be reaction when the kingdom of man comes across the kingdom of God. And the reaction, he says, is most common is surprise, which I definitely have found in my life as well says in uh, verse 4 and 5, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I know back when when I became a Christian, uh, early years of college, I had a lot of friends from high school especially who, you know, we, we, we would meet up. And as I was figuring out my walk with Christ, I was discovering that uh, hanging out with them was not the best choice. Uh, I was 
finding myself always going back to the lifestyle that I used to live, and, and that involved a lot of stuff that, well, I shouldn't be doing. And so I had to really talk to them about it and say, hey, guys, like, I'm no longer going to do that anymore. You know, I'm no longer going to go out and underage drink. I'm no longer going to do, you know, these parties. I'm not going to do that stuff. And they were, well, they were surprised for sure because they knew me from before. And then they were angry as well because, I mean, this is their friend that all of a sudden is so different. And for, for them, they just couldn't understand it. And it's because when you're living in the kingdom of God, or when you're living in the kingdom of man, you don't know that you're worshiping your idols, like I said. And so they could not see what I saw, which was how destructive that behavior was, especially for my relationship with God, who I was trying to serve. And so I lost all those friends. They didn't really want anything to do with me. And that's, that's honestly something that happens. But when you're, when you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, you find that you're not alone in it. You find that there's an entire kingdom of people who are all serving the same king for the same purpose, to glorify him. And so even in the midst of what I lost and their surprise and their anger and their reaction to uh, me switching my allegiance, I also found a new brotherhood that was so much better than what I had before. And believe me, I would have loved for any of those guys to be able to join me in the kingdom of God. And unfortunately, it's never happened, but I continue to pray for them to this day because I have a freedom that I know they, they have no concept of. And so we want to continue to encourage people into it. But we are going to have those reactions. We're going to see surprise. People are going to look at us and, and not know what to really do with us, especially those who knew us from before. Take encouragement in that, because what that is saying is that you have been transformed and you have been changed by God, and his grace is actively moving in your life. It is something that is encouraged, and we should be encouraged from it. And that's what Peter is saying. This entire letter for Peter is encouraging the church. And so, yeah, he lays down this stuff and says, you know what, they're going to be surprised that you're going to do this, and they're going to malign you. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to push at it, and they're going to poke at you. But he says, be encouraged because you are fulfilling your purpose, which is to glorify God. And to bring honor to Jesus Christ, your king. It's difficult sometimes when, when we do look at that and people look at us and they see the change. Like my friends, all they saw when, when I had to change my lifestyle, basically, all they saw was that, oh, now you can't do this. Now you can't do that. Now you can't do this. Why would you want to do that? The world looks on at the kingdom of God and they oftentimes see a list of, you know, do's and do nots. But that's not, that's not the point. That, that's definitely not what it is. Uh, and unfortunately, sometimes even those who are believers also look at it as a list of do's and do nots because we are still being clouded by the sin that's left over from our life uh, before Christ. 
And it reminded me of uh, 1 Corinthians 10. And he's talking about um, not imposing your convictions on other people. And, and with this, it was something that I had to remember in that moment with my friends. It's not imposing on them that my, my now convictions, knowing that, you know, uh, underage drinking, for example, knowing that underage drinking was wrong for me to do because I was, I was breaking the law. I was not honoring the government that, you know, Christ had put before me, and I was disobeying him in that. I couldn't go to them and say, hey, you guys need to stop drinking, you know. That would have made no sense to them. They, they thought it was dumb that I was doing it. And so imposing that on them would have made no sense and would have just hindered anything, any thought that they did have toward Christianity. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33, it says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Given no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. It's not a list of rules. And there's two sides to this. You know, one is... I am not going to impose my convictions on other people. And I'll stick with drinking because that's something that's uh, easy to understand. Um, I have a family member who is uh, completely against alcohol of any kind. And the reason is because uh, she has a past with it. Uh, She has a past with it before she was a believer. And so for her, it's very difficult to be around it in any way. And then for me, I enjoy a good beer, and I have no problem having a nice porter or a stout, you know, something like that. Not the weak stuff, but the good stuff. (laughs) And I enjoy it. But when I'm around that family member, I'm not going to drink around her. And the point is not that uh, I want to hide it from her. She knows that I drink, and I know that she doesn't like alcohol to be around her at all. And yet we both honor each other and we honor God by not imposing our convictions from one side or the other onto the other person. She doesn't demand that I never drink. Matter of fact, she hasn't even demanded that I don't drink in front of her. And I've never demanded that she needs to change her ways because we have freedom in Christ and drinking's not a sin, being drunk's a sin. I don't say that to her because she knows that truth. But for her, it goes beyond just that simple black and white line. It's a conviction of her heart. And so if she was then uh, went into drinking, even if she didn't get drunk, she began drinking and she felt convicted of it because she knew in her past life she was worshiping that as an idol, then she would be stepping into sin, even if she didn't get drunk because she was worshiping an idol again. Now, that is not an idol that I've struggled with, but it is something for her that she cannot even get close to. And so we don't impose our convictions on each other. And it's because the Christian life is not a set of rules. It is not a list of do's and do nots. Rather, it is the love that we show to each other. That is what should surprise the world. That should be why they react so strongly, not because of what we do or what we don't do, but rather because of the love that we show in the midst of doing or not doing what we do and don't do. 
Make sure in everything that you do, you show love to one another and to those who are not believers. That's the difference. Moving on into verse 6, he says, uh, in chapter 4, he says, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now this, this verse is talking even more so about the differences between the two kingdoms, like we were just talking about. And, and it's talking more in depth than this, but it's also a difficult verse to understand. But it's still relaying a reaction that the world is going to have. See, at the time, contemporaries were arguing with Christians because Christians were, you know, teaching and preaching that when you give your life to Christ, you have eternal life, which is true. But they were seeing it, the contemporaries at the time were seeing it as, well, these Christians are still dying. I don't understand. It doesn't make sense to me. They're still dying, so obviously this is not real, otherwise they would have eternal life. They would keep going, right? And so it was something that they misunderstood. And once again, it's because the kingdom of God cannot be understood by those in the kingdom of man. Too blinded and fogged by their worship of idols that they can't understand the things of God until he reveals it to them. Because it's, it's nothing to, it has nothing to do with the things that they can see because it's something so much greater in their imagination, because the kingdom of God is eternal, and the kingdom of man is finite. The kingdom of man is going to end at death, but the kingdom of God goes on for eternal life. The kingdom of man fears to grow old, but the kingdom of God celebrates life past death. The kingdom of man hoards pleasures on himself, because that's what it is. That's what worship of idols is, is worshiping yourself. But the kingdom of God joyfully serves others instead of ourselves. The kingdom of man is ruled by a fleeting, senseless desire to pleasure our flesh. But the kingdom of God is ruled by a perfect, all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful king that we devote ourselves to instead. The differences between these two kingdoms are vast and they're difficult to comprehend and they can't be comprehended unless the Holy Spirit reveals it to you. But how amazing is it when he does reveal it to us? He reveals to you that you can shake off your slavery to sin and that you can enter into citizenship in his kingdom and be able to submit yourselves to him. It is something that is amazing. It's, it's life-giving. It's freeing. And it's something that we should want to share with every single person in the kingdom of man that we meet. Because like I said, it is a war the kingdom of man is always striving to pull you back into it, and we are always striving to take their citizens from them. That is what the war is between these two kingdoms. Now we're going to dive into the kingdom of God and what that really looks like. And what Peter uh, really focuses on is this, is since the kingdom of God is made of people, it's not a physical place, he wants to tell us how we as citizens should act and how we should be. And he says, it's because of your citizenship that you can act this way. So let me inform you on how you should. 
It says in 7 through 10 of chapter 4, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So the very first characteristic is to be sober-minded. Now with this, this is, this is talking about having a clear communication with God. He says to be clear-minded and sober-minded to be able to, for the sake of your prayers. And prayer, praying is the communication we have with God. It's being able to have a clear line of communication with Him. And it's because when we sin, we are worshiping our idols, we are fogged by that. There's a fog that comes over your mind. There's a fog that comes over your body. How many times have you been caught up in a situation where you have sin, temptation, something before you, and you're looking at it and you're saying, I really should not do that. And then you start doing it and you're like, I really shouldn't be doing this. And then you keep going and you just sin all out. You just do everything that you know you shouldn't be doing. And then when you're, like, when you're done with whatever you were doing, then you're just like, man, I should not have done that. Why did I do that? That doesn't even make sense why I did that. And it's because our sin fogs our mind, and it makes us uh, be basically drunk within our sin. And so he says to be sober-minded, to make sure that fog doesn't come across you, to be able to stay clear-minded so that we can have a clear line of communication with God. And we're going to be ineffective without that. And so it, it begins in our mind. And so what we need to do is be able to continually search for that in our relationship with God and say, please keep my mind clear. Keep me sober-minded so that I can be effective in worshiping you and so that I will not be tempted to sin. Because, see, nothing begins with the action. It always begins with the condition of your heart. And being sober-minded will be able to make sure that you can keep tabs on the condition of your heart because God will always be going into it. And so he will always be speaking into it. So remember, nothing begins, no sin begins with an action. It begins with the condition of your heart. And so now that he said, you need to be sober-minded, and so now he goes on and says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. And so he says, be sober-minded, be clear in thought, so that way you can Worship your king, worship your father, and then after that, now show love to everyone. Once again, that's how we're waging our war is through how we act toward one another, and we are picking people from the kingdom of man to bring them into the kingdom of God because they see the love that we have for one another. They see the love shown between believers. And so, in this, in this verse, it's very clear. He says, keep loving one another earnestly. It's an active love. It's something that's still being persistent. It's happening and it's ongoing and it doesn't end. And so we need to make sure that our love for each other doesn't end. And then he says it covers a multitude of sins. And he's not saying that, you know, if we show love to one another, to one another that our sins will be forgiven because of that. No, our sins are forgiven because of faith in Jesus Christ. He is saying, though, that love covers a multitude of sins between one another. 
If you sin against a brother or sister in Christ, but then you show love to them and compassion and you say, I am sorry, and you own up to what you've done and just love on them, then it covers the sin that happened before. It's so much easier to be reconciled to each other if you love one another. So he's saying believers, citizens of this kingdom, don't hold things against each other. Love one another in everything you do, and bitterness will never take root because of that. It will cover a multitude of sins, and so you must show love to one another. And then next he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality is a situation that we're placed in, and it is a vulnerable situation to bring somebody into your home. And hospitality is not just bringing people into your home, but it is always going to be a place of vulnerability, a place where you're going to have to open yourself up to other people. And he's saying, show hospitality to fellow believers. Love each other in such a way that you are willing to put yourself all out there on the line and not withhold anything and allow them to partake of your life and your home to be able to be with you. Not only that, it's a chance for us to show hospitality to the rest of the world and to be able to share our king with them. Next one is gifts. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is made of people, of citizens. That means in a physical kingdom, you'll, you'll see things you know, like towns and, and uh, people uh, doing you know, their jobs, carpenters, you know, whatever. In the kingdom of God, though, there is no physical thing like that. We are the physical manifestation, and so all of us fulfill the roles that all those places would do. We're the ones who make the kingdom of God run, He chooses to use the church to be able to show his will to the world. And so we are the ones that are actively doing that. And so embrace the gifts that God has given you. Embrace the position and the uh, situation that he's put you in. Whether you're working at a church or whether you're working in a school, whether you're working you know, at your family business or you're just working a job, doing what you need to to provide for your family. No matter what you're doing, do it all for the glory of God because that is where he's placed you and you are still a citizen no matter what you're doing. And the world is looking on and they are going to see something different in you. And so be be happy and embrace the gifts that you've been blessed with because no matter how, uh, no matter all the things that you can do and you look at it and you may say, this is not something that, you know, is that great. I'm not great. I'm not special. I don't have like these amazing abilities, you know. If that's you thinking that, then you need to put that down because God has gifted you in ways that he's not gifted other people. Every single one of you have gifts, that you can use to further the kingdom of God. And he's gifted you in a very specific way. My sister 
once was talking to me about how she was struggling in uh, her classroom. She's a second grade teacher. And she was talking about all the struggles that she do, you know, had this past year in her classroom. And she was just talking about, you know, like, sometimes I just feel like I'm not getting anywhere, I'm not doing anything, and I feel like it's just not worth it, you know? And I just, and, and she talked about feeling just inadequate. And I was like, Joy, you're in a classroom with all these second graders. I don't even know what age that is, but it's tiny, and they're annoying, and I cannot do that. (laughs) And so I told her, you have a gifting to be able to teach these kids. And I pointed out other stories she's told me about how she's influenced the life of this family or this family or this child and seen them later, you know. And I was like, you did something amazing with that. God has done something amazing through you that I can't do at all. I would go insane within like a week. (laughs) And so be proud of the gifting God gave you. Know that he has you there for a very specific purpose and and a very specific uh, part of his will. Be proud of the gifts that God has given you and use them to glorify him in everything that you do. And once again, I want to remind you at the end of this little list that we need to be sober-minded because everything begins and ends with the condition of your heart. Action, both good and bad, will fall in line after that. So what should the condition of our heart be then? And this is now where we're going to get into the very practical, the, the part that I know you guys like, the, the, very, the thing that you can take away, the thing that, you know, honestly, I really just want you to listen to this. Like, this is the important part. At the beginning, I talked about, you know, how in a kingdom, especially in, like, England and stuff, there was this thing called the king's man, right? Somebody who devoted themselves to their king and, and gave them everything they had, their full devotion, My challenge to you would be a king's man to our king. I'm going to read you an oath of fealty that was actually used in the 10th century. And I think it's fascinating how you can read this and see the comparisons and the parallels with our walk with God. So this is literally what somebody would say to the king of uh, a Saxon kingdom in the 10th century. They would say, I will be true and faithful and love all which he loves and shun all which he shuns according to the laws of God and the order of the world. Nor will I ever be with, uh, without his will or action through word or deed do anything which is unpleasing to him as it was in our agreement when I submitted myself to him and chose his will. If these guys can do that to an earthly king who messes up and does things all the time that, you know, are not great, if they can do that and devote themselves completely to somebody like that, how much more can we devote ourselves in the same way to our king who is perfect and who loves you more than you can even understand? I encourage you to make that oath of fealty to your king daily, What's holding you back? What's, what, what's keeping you from doing this? Oftentimes, it's a mind clouded by sin. You're not sober-minded. 
You're allowing your idols to fill your thoughts. Put those away. What else is holding you back? Maybe it's that you love yourself more than your king. Maybe everything in your life is still centered on what is best for you, not what's best for your king. Or maybe, and this last one is the one I struggled with, maybe it's you don't actually trust him. Maybe you find yourself in so many situations where you look at it and you know that God is going to take care of it or you know that God has, you know, the best in mind and yet you look at it and say, you know what, I don't know if he actually does or if he actually will. I don't know if he actually does care for me. I don't know if he actually even wants anything to do with me. You don't actually trust God. You don't actually trust Jesus and his promises in Scripture. If those things are holding you back, then put them aside and surrender yourself and swear fealty, swear an oath of allegiance to your king again. And be a king's man. Somebody who loves and is devoted to his king in everything, has complete faith and trust in him. Someone who will joyfully allow his will, his will to supersede your desires. Luke 9.23 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Do it daily. Swear yourself to your king every single day. And we do it all. Once again, we do it all for his glory. The very last verse in, in this section that we're studying says, To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do everything for the glory of your king. Please pray with me. Lord, I thank you so much for today and the opportunity to worship you. The opportunity to be able to just bring praise to your name because you deserve it all. My king, I devote myself to you and I swear myself to you that everything that I do is going to be for your will and your will alone and that you will just take the things out of my life, take the chains off of me that are trying to divert me from your will. I thank you for the opportunities that we will have leaving this place into this next week where we're going to be able to go in the midst of the kingdom of man and we're going to be able to say and proclaim proudly and loudly that we are citizens of the kingdom of God and that there is something amazing there that we want to share with the rest of the world and that we will be happy and joyful in that. I thank you so much, Lord, for all that you do. And now as we start to transition into a time of, of giving and at a time of tithes and offerings, I thank you for this opportunity to be able to submit ourselves to you, to be able to take our own desires, our own idols even, and put them down and say, no, I'm going to submit myself to you in every single way, even my finances, even, even the ability for me to just uh, buy things maybe for myself or, or for the things that I want but rather I'm going to say I'm going to devote myself to you and my checkbook is devoted to you and so your will be done in this time. Thank you so much for that opportunity. Just another opportunity to worship you. So I thank you and I praise you. Amen.